Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. This is episode number 80, and I am Thad Forrester. In 2010, Bo and Ben Wise buried their big brother, Jeremy. Two years later, Bo traveled down that same road to bury Ben. Bo went from the youngest son to the only son. Their parents are the only known U.S. military family to lose two sons in Afghanistan during the 19-plus year war. In this interview, I'm privileged to have Bo and his co-author of Three Wise Men, Tom Saleo. Jeremy was a SEAL turned CIA contractor who was killed in an Al-Qaeda sneak attack. Ben, Green Beret medic and sniper, was killed in a large-scale operation. After top U.S. officials realized that two wise brothers had been lost, Bo, a Marine, was permanently pulled from the battlefield, becoming the only U.S. service member to be removed from combat as a result of such extraordinary events in Afghanistan. I had a great talk with Bo and Tom today. You may know Tom from The Stream and author of books such as Brothers Forever, Eight Seconds of Courage, and Fire in My Eyes, and now, of course, Three Wise Men. Tom and I also had a joint book signing back in 2015 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama at Dreamland Barbecue. Had a great time with him there and meeting his family. So thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Five stars are always appreciated. A review also helps as well. So thank you very much. Hope you enjoy. Tom, you wrote about this a little bit in the book, but what really drew you to this story? Well, thanks for uh, having us on, Thad. It's a real honor to uh, speak with two Gold Star brothers at the same time, and thank you for your family's sacrifice. What drew me to the story is I just wanted to help play a small role in bringing this historic story of sacrifice to our country and to the world and remind people that you know, every day for the past 20 years, almost 20 years, uh, these volunteer warriors and their families have been, you know, out in the field serving, sacrificing. And, uh, you know, obviously this story um, is rare. It's the only instance in terms of the war in Afghanistan where uh, two brothers have, have both been killed. And, and then, of course, Bo was pulled off the battlefield. You know, I thought what better way to illuminate and and make sure Americans don't forget that not only did this happen, but it's, it's still happening. The, the fight continues for the military community, and I hope this book makes a difference in reminding you know, the 99% of us, including me, that haven't served in uniform. It started out, or at least from your side, Tom, you were writing an article, weren't you? I had actually seen – there was a lengthy article in the Washington Post uh, back in 2014 about – the Wise family, and I was working on, uh, actually it wound up being several books in a row, and and didn't have time to get to it, but I, I always wanted to find a way to reach the Wise family, and as it turned out, uh, the article connection was, I had written an article about a fallen hero named uh, U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Jesse Williams, who was killed in Iraq, and as it turned out, uh, he served with Ben Wise on that Iraq of uh, the first Iraq deployment back in 2003. And I knew, I know his wife, Sonia and had kept in touch with her over the past decade. And, and it was actually Sonia who put me in touch with Ben's wife, Tracy, and then Tracy put me in touch with Bo. So it kind of all came together after, you know, meeting other families and working with other gold star families and, and there was a connection there, and I'm just so grateful that 
you know, it worked out and, and the wises gave me a chance to help. Bo, what was it about Tom? Why did you decide to, to go with him? Oh, there's a lot of reasons. And, uh, and as you know, but first of all, dad, thank you for, uh, for having me on. And, um, yes, but there, there was a number of different reasons. And at the, the top of the list, we kind of, um, synced on a lot of ideas as far as things that, you know, I, things that I wanted to say and the things that he showed the, the most interest in. Number one, I would say would be was Jeremy and Ben's, you know, last actions being in the preservation of life and, um, just fighting to save as many people as they could in the midst of chaos. And that's, you know, I, I think the, the truest sign of uh, a pure warrior. And it, it was just kind of uh, exemplified how they lived. That was, you know, they lived their entire lives and their careers that way and just kind of wanting to make some order out of everything, you know, chaotic around them. But And so when, when Tom and I were discussing the book idea, as far as just preserving their legacy, everything just seemed to click. But there, there was a number of different reasons, but I would say that, that was at the top of the list. I found some emails, Tom, the first time you contacted me. I think it was about 2012, and uh, you, you wrote an article on my brother Mark. And uh, when that was published, my oldest brother, who was very quiet, and a lot of people don't even know I have an oldest brother because he's, cause he's just kind of sticks to himself, but he said, man, who is this guy? That was a really good article, and it was. And so since then, of course, I've read I think I've read three of your books. I know I haven't read the four that I know of, but at least three of them I've got. And I know, I mean, Tom, you do a great job. And this book is, it took me a good month, I think, to read it because I'm kind of a slow reader. And I also have a house full of boys and, and I do it when I can. But um, very captivating book. Bo, what, how would you describe your relationship with your brothers and your sister while, while y'all were growing up? Uh, you know, Jeremy used uh, the Leave it to Beaver reference often. And, uh, and it was, I mean, we had, I mean, a magical childhood. It was absolutely amazing. And this little town, El Dorado, Arkansas, about, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 miles from the Louisiana border. But um, we lived in a few different houses, but we were always in the country, you know. And my dad was an only child, and I, I think he always, he was kind of a miracle baby. He couldn't have siblings. And Jeremy articulated once that, Dad gave us the childhood that he always wanted. You know what I mean? He wanted a big family. He wanted country. And uh, so after he finished uh, his uh, internship and residency at uh, the Los Angeles VA, he moved his practice to southern Arkansas and went back to the roots and and just gave us, like, everything that, you know, he wanted. And, and uh, you know, we had amazing parents. And, you know, so we we were all all pretty close growing up, even though there was a big age gap. You know, Jeremy being uh, 10 years my elder, who would have turned 47 yesterday. Anyway, but, you know, it, in some ways that was kind of cool because I wasn't a rival, you know what I mean? I was kind of like a pet or a toy mm-hmm. take every take me everywhere, you know? And uh, eventually it, all four of us just got closer and closer as the, as the years went on. Music was came about a lot in the book. Y'all, of course, music is a powerful, you know, it takes me back to certain moments or periods of my life. Uh, what was some of the music that y'all liked? Well, we, our household was so, you know, Christian and, and kind of strict in a lot of ways. You know, as you, as, you know, Tom, you know, tells the story of uh, Halloween, but it was, you know, Harvest Festival in our house, you know. Yeah. So, like, there was a lot, of, a lot of Christian music. We all grew up in, like, the, the youth band or the praise and worship band singing, had her, you know, play piano or sing and um 
you know, and Ben would play bass or guitar and Jeremy guitar and myself and drums, you know, so, uh, but, you know, the, uh, the Christian music, we grew up on, uh, <laughs> like eight, the Christian air metal phase. I don't know if you guys remember resurrection band or res or bride or all that stuff. So that was in the house, but you know, whenever mom and dad were out of the house, it was Van Halen or Ozzy and stuff like that. But, and, uh, black label society, you know, Jeremy was a big, uh, black label fan, you know, but for the most part, it was it was Christian through and through at the core. That's that's just kind of who we are. <laughs> there was one particular group you mentioned that I had never heard of uh, back from the mid '90s. But you know, I was I was kind of mainstream, whatever was on the radio, basically, or whatever my brothers listened to. But some of those mm-hmm. that indie stuff or uh, the smaller name bands, I definitely didn't know. There's a part early in the book you you get in a fight with Ben, a pretty good fight, mm-hmm. I believe you. I think you punched him, or he punched you. But you can. I want you to, if you don't mind explaining, just because this kind of gives a good picture of y'all's relationship. Because Jeremy got y'all together, and Ben actually sincerely apologized. I'm sorry, brother. Can you forgive me? I don't think that would have ever happened in my house. It it may have. It just. I don't think Mm -hmm. we we were that way, unfortunately. But um, but Jeremy gave y'all a talking to, and he's like, look, someday we're gonna be old. Fat, bald, maybe broke, our wives may leave us, but we always have each other. No matter what happens, you'll yeah. always have two brothers to lean on. Do you remember that vividly? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I've told people before that Jeremy, for instance, being the oldest, being the most uh, classic A-type personality, so demonstrative, like one of the things that, you know, he, he took his or his failures professionally but he took our failures personally, particularly mine and Ben's. You know, Heather was a golden child. and Everybody knew she was going to be valedictorian and all, you know. And so he never had to worry about Heather. You know, we, we were the ones that he just constantly worried about, you know, growing up. But I, I remember the fight, and I can, I can say honestly looking back, that I don't think, you know, and, and fights got like that between him and Ben, and he never pulled himself back. But when he saw it between us, he knew that he had to step in and like stop that from happening. And every now and again, when, when, you know, he would fight hard, but he would apologize hard too, if he thought he was in the wrong. And so when Jeremy, you know, pulled us aside, it was just kind of a real, I just saw him go from play where he was just enjoying watching the fight. And then it was, Oh, this just got real. And I, to this day, I really don't know what he told Ben when he pulled him aside. And uh, I remember swinging a punch. I'm not really sure if it landed or glanced or whatever. I just I just remember I wanted to kill him. And, you know, but when Jeremy came, Jeremy and Ben came back in the room, you know, Ben's expression was different. I mean, it, it clearly, whatever he, whatever he said, absolutely resonated with him. And that was, you know, Jeremy was, and, and that was, I, I thought, one of the best stories, you know, when, when Tom and I were going through this. And, you know, and I think Tom thought the same thing. And, you know, again, one more thing, how I know I got the right co-author. He was perfect for it. That, that story just kind of, you know, really tells uh, like how Jeremy was the glue, you know, the uh, uh, the center of gravity for the four of us. Yeah, that was good. Was that one of those you had forgotten about and then um, either just through the course of talking about the book or maybe Tom asking the right questions that it came back to your remembrance? It, it, maybe, you know, the, I mean, I I remember getting thrown into the arm wall. <laughs> that, that would definitely <laughs> Uh, you again, like the, the mirror just, it was like this oval shaped mirror and the frame like busted and it dislocated. And, um, you know, we're 
we'll worry about how explaining that to mom later. You know, <laughs> Jeremy was just like, all right, I've got to diffuse this right now. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, I had forgotten that have come back to me over the years and, um, the childhood, most of that comes, comes back pretty good. I mean, some of the things were pretty vague, uh, but just talking about it and, you know, you know, journaling and then just talking to Tom. And I, I think in within a year, I, I probably told Tom more than I've told anybody else. And it just was very cathartic process. And a lot of things just started to come out. I think it is a great sign of a, a good uh, co-author and a person who writes is a good listener and asking good questions. Ben ended up, Ben being the middle son, ended up joining the military before Jeremy. But Jeremy ended up, and just correct me on anything, but he ended up going to medical school. He had been, he'd already gotten his white coat. And shortly after 9-11, President Bush addressed the country. You talk about Jeremy, he really just, he, he didn't want to be a doctor. He just wanted to, right. there's actually some awesome lines in here about Jeremy, how he wanted to basically fight, fight terrorists. Yeah, that was Jeremy, right? It wasn't Ben that where you had the basically the kick stuff yes. and, and yeah, it's it awesome. Um, yeah. But Jeremy, shortly after President Bush addressed the nation, roughly ten days after nine eleven, I think you were with Jeremy, weren't you? And, and there was some. What kind of impact did that have on you and him both? I man, it was there was. I thought it, maybe it was an emotional reaction, and I you know I thought. It's one thing to enlist for emotional reasons, but to drop out of med school. And so I, for once, I had the same hesitation that the rest of the family did. Like, dude, you are in med school. You're almost done. Like, you've, it's, you know, all you've got to do is finish. And, but he was, he was 27 and approaching the cutoff age. And this was in, at, just in his, uh, near his apartment outside, uh, just outside of UAMS in Little Rock. You know, and as you said, like, you know, one of the things that he said, he was approaching, he was 27 and 28 is the cutoff age for buds. And so for him, in his mind, it was now or never. And 9-11 was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And and he said, I, I stopped asking questions after, you know, he said, look, you know, 20 years from now, I can look back and say a number of different things. You know, either I, I could have been a doctor or I could have been a Navy SEAL. I can't live with the latter. I've got to be a Navy SEAL. And I, I was just like, okay, you know, there's no talking him out of this. I, I, when Jeremy commits to something, that's it. Yeah, there was some symbolism there where his white coat was laying on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> like he was done, basically. Yeah. While Jeremy was in, and maybe this is while he was deployed, Bo, he, he was like a, either he met, ran it or he contributed to some publication called The Horse's Ass. What was that? <laughs> that was that was something that Tom discovered, you know, when doing the interviews with the seals and the green berets. And uh, now, you know, Jeremy was a uh, a professional smartass, and, uh, and I, you know, was, this is one of those things that we, as we were going through interviews when uh, we, were, we were going through the book, and like Tom would call me, like, "Hey, did you know about this? And did you know about that?" He's like, "Nope." <laughs> and. <laughs> And it's good, you know, having those little comic moments is, as heavy as this manuscript was by the time we got done with it. That was a good, um, you know, breath of fresh air for me, just reconnecting with Jeremy's sense of humor. And uh, he, he wasn't scared to speak truth to power. And sometimes it came off a little bit sarcastically, but Navy SEALs have a, 
even you know the higher up you go, even they they still have a pretty good appreciation for sarcasm, especially when it's delivered as as professionally as he could do. <laughs> I know. Tom, was there anything about the horse's ass? Maybe some articles you found that were just you know maybe not appropriate for the book, or what did you find out about it? Especially something that maybe we we wouldn't know by reading the book. Yeah, I did not see any articles. I mean, it was a a long time ago, and I'm not even sure, you know, none of the seals I talked to still had copies of it, but, you know, so that was from memory in terms of, uh, you know, the things they would write about. It was definitely something that uh, was between, you know, the seals on the ground, and and it's not something that was being delivered to their commanding officers, I'll just put it that way. Um, But, yeah, it was just one of those things that, uh, I thought it was interesting, you know, something you wouldn't think of about Navy SEALs deployed to Iraq, uh, you know, during a very dangerous time, but just something they did to, you know, not only keep each other updated, you know, in their own language of what was happening, but also poke fun at some of the things that they may have seen on a daily basis that, you know, could have been handled better. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was definitely I, I I sensed the the sarcasm and the the smart the the quick wit that that Jeremy must have had you know, for that. That was funny. Bo, can you what can you tell us about Jer- Jeremy gets in? He's in the seals. He's on the teams. And what can you tell us about that final that battle where because he was actually he was out of the seals and he was working for the CIA, I believe. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about yeah. that that last? That last day. Well, he was uh, one of uh, uh, two guys uh, contracted through Z himself and um, uh, Dane Parisi. And uh, Dane was, uh, don't quote me on, on the number, I believe it was like 16 or 17 year soldier, Green Beret, um, you know, combat veteran through and through. And he and Dane had a good working relationship. And they were uh, two of the guys on the ground that were, you know, there to protect the, the agency team. And Tom, correct me on the pronunciation, Balawi, Al Balawi, I believe is how you say it. Um, yes. And it was a Jordanian doctor who um, we thought was our source, and we, we thought that we had connected him and that he had turned on, on Al-Qaeda, uh, when in fact he was a triple agent from the get-go that was, uh, you know, deliberately Im- embedded himself in the agency to get close to him. and um, Against advice uh he was brought inside the fob uh, without being taken to a safe house or anything and um they were trying to befriend him long story short and he set off uh a suicide vest inside the fob um and killed seven of of the team members of the cia seven that are um on the wall at langley and that's Pretty much it. I mean, there, there's more to it, of course, but you know, it in 2009 we didn't get a whole lot of information. Everything just came was very, very vague off the bat because I, looking back, I think the agency didn't want to make the mistake of giving us partial or incorrect information. So information was held until they had 100% of it, and then they debriefed the families. So when you said he wasn't taken to a safe house, the 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 guy, the, the terrorist, basically, so he wasn't searched, yeah. right? Even though. People, yeah. I think, including Jeremy, yeah. thought that was crazy. Yeah, and and 
and uh, Joby Warwick uh, did, as Tom pointed out, did a phenomenal job, um, you know, covering this story as I think as in depth as you possibly can. And there, there are some risks. I mean, you know, you can't frisk him at the border, you know, where you pick him up because you could expose yourself to sniper fire and all these things. But, um, you know, there was a lot of risk taken just given the size of the reward. This guy had shown us, you know, pictures of him with top officials. And uh, I believe there's either a photo of him with either Zarqawi or, uh, or Bin Laden himself. So, here. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, there we go. And so I mean, and, and yeah, and I, I looking back, I just kind of, you know, I had a lot of frustration with it, but you know, I've, I've come to terms with it and I understand you know, as much as I can. I think, you know, why it played out the way it did. Bo, where were you when you found out that Jeremy was killed? I was in Helmand, um, in the in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, which is pretty much the, mo- the most southern most district of Afghanistan in Nawa district just outside uh Marja and my platoon had relocated to uh uh Bravo's company FOB um known as Spingar which is on Route Olympia and the say the road that goes east to west into Marja and the Marja the Marja invasion hadn't kicked off yet there was a lot of stuff that was trickling out but we were told that I was part of my platoon was a, a combined anti-armor team which long story short specializes in very, very big weapons, um, laws, smalls, AT4s, and most importantly, javelins and tow missiles. And so we had a plan together to go into Marja and uh, kick some ass and push them backwards and try and contain what we could until the invasion. And in the middle of the night, while we were sleeping, the operation got kanked, and we, without, without being told very, very little from our very thorough platoon commander, we uh, we just went back to the battalion fob and that's and um, my platoon commander Lieutenant Barnes took me aside and said, hey, um, I need I need some help with something very vague, no specifics again, and just took me straight to uh, uh, the COC and um, or as uh, you know they say in the army to talk. And we went in and went behind this door and all of a sudden I spotted the battalion cha- chaplain and knew that it was very bad and. And he was very swiftly just communicated the bad news. And within a few hours, I was on an Osprey headed for Kandahar to try and catch a flight home. And there's so much to this situation because you you and Ben – Ben was deployed too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, he, well, his uh, ODA was deployed. He wasn't um, – they had already gotten there. But Luke, his son, was born and uh, just a, a, a couple weeks before. So he was um, – on uh, uh, pater- uh, yeah, paternity leave. And um, so he was just a few days away, I believe, from joining his guys uh, up north, where you know wherever they were at at the time. Um, so he got the news back in Washington. And so he just stayed put. And I linked up with him for the memorial service. We went to Virginia Beach. And then we both went back to Afghanistan together. Yeah. And then you actually came back home for the burial or a memorial service for Jeremy, right? Correct. Yeah. I think about the heartache just from losing a a brother and then you got to leave your team twice. In your case, you worry about them Mm -hmm. and you, y'all do a great job talking, explaining this. And some of the guys didn't like it and they felt like, Hey, they're getting to go home and have some good food and a warm shower and that kind of thing. Is that kind of 
how it played out too? Not not so much for me, not so much on the first trip, but on the second trip, definitely. And I, I you know, I was thinking, man, do I have the option of going home? Should I go home? And and I, I talked to both my platoon sergeant and my platoon commander. They gave me two completely different perspectives. And uh, I believe it was my platoon commander. I was like, look, man, I get it, and we'll be fine. He was like, but if you don't bury your brother, you're you're going to regret that for the rest of your life. But there were some some of the Marines that kind of cold shouldered me when I came back from the second trip. They were like, you know, I don't know. It was like, all right, you already went home. You know, you had your break. You know, you had to leave us a second time. And uh, and there was there was a little bit of the guilt trip. And then it, eventually they all got over it. But it was just kind of you know what would I think after a while probably the majority of them, if not all of them, said, all right, what would I do in his shoes? And uh, after you know. But yeah, and and Ben endured that when when he went home as well, and he he and he talked about that coming back. Tom, how would you describe Jeremy as a person? Intensely driven. You know, we talked already about his sense of humor, but um, and and I'm sure Bo can speak more to this, of course. But you know, it seemed like when it was time to get serious, you know, Jeremy could flip that switch, um, you know, and I, I just think about, I think a lot about his decision to, you know, he, he did go into medical school and, and made it through, I guess it was three years. And, but the entire time his lifelong goal of becoming a Navy SEAL was on his mind. And then 9-11 was, as Bo has said, the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and even though he only had that one year to go, he, you know, told Bo, uh, you know, listen, those people trapped in the World Trade Center couldn't defend themselves. I can. I can I can go over there and take the fight to the enemy. And, uh, you know, so you talk about, you know, years and years of preparation already that had, had led up to that moment. And then it took more, several more years of training and, and preparation for him to realize his dream and, and become a SEAL. So I would say, you know, it, it would be hard to imagine someone who's more motivated on a daily basis than he was from the research that I, I did. Bo, how would you describe, how do you describe Ben's anger and your anger after Jeremy's death? I would say mine was completely unbridled. Ben had control of it, or at least he got control of it. And that was definitely, as far as you want to go back to the, your earlier question, as far as things that we uncovered that I would have never known, this is something that Tom uncovered that, you know, he called me right away and said, did you know that Ben was hosting Bible studies and prayer sessions in Afghanistan? Like ben protected his soul, and he, he, he spotted it, and he recognized it as a weakness. I saw it as a weapon. And so my response to grief was not very good at all, I, and especially since I was never in a firefight. I not, never once um, during or after the invasion of Marja did I ever have to pull the trigger. Then, on the other hand, being the more seasoned combat veteran, like infinitely more seasoned, you know, I, I think he came to a realization of, you know, killing is not going to satisfy anything. It's not going it, to – it's not a solution. And – so, I mean, at some point, and I can't really, you know, and I, I've wondered about that myself. Like, at what point did Ben get a handle on it and start pulling it back? And Tom, you know, uncovered things that, 
that he did, like me, he struggled with that temper. But, you know, mine, I mean, it's a miracle I didn't get anyone hurt or, or, or killed because I was, I wanted to fight so bad. And um, looking back and actually going through this with Tom and then Tom is uncovering this, I was like, man, that's how I should have been. But, you know, lessons learned. I'm here now and I, I want to try and make that better and learn from my mistakes. Ben's mistakes and his successes as far as coping with grief while still having to get back in the fight, like be with your boys, you know, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you know. Well, you had at least one or a few wise people around you that kind of that kind of checked you at least at times right mm-hmm. oh yeah and uh my, my team leader uh uh lolo and uh my my two of my best friends in the world uh johnson and, and green you know it, the, all every single one there wasn't a moment in the day where there wasn't one eye on me where they one of them wasn't looking out for me like where's he at what's he doing is you know and if 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 i was you know trying to piggyback another squad's patrol one of them would make damn sure that they were going with me. And it, it, was, and it was for my benefit. You know, they, they spotted it and they knew, like, there's going to be moments where we might have to pull them back. And and a couple of times that they had to. And thank God that they were there to do that. I wasn't, you know. But, yeah, yeah if with, without them, I'm not sure. You know, Lolo, that, that was uh, Lopez. That was his, uh, his third combat deployment, um, you know. And the, he was he was salty before we went to Marja. And, you know, I, I don't know where I'd be without him today. I still talk to him almost every day. <laughs> well, that's covered very well in the book. Uh, I'd like to 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 go to Ben now, and really, you know, unfortunately, just for just for sake of time, is go to his final battle. This was a this was a big operation. Yeah. Bo, what can you what can you tell us about that day? Or about a final um, day on the battlefield, well, I should say. Uh, yeah, well, um, he was uh, part of the team that was um, breaching a cave network. There was the, uh, the the town, as I understand it, um, where you know they were going after these uh, uh, high value individuals, and they were getting control of the town. There was this ridge, kind of a ridge line next to the town, and it was um, and the troops on the ground, the the Ben's guys were taking fire from this cave network. And Ben was tasked with uh, clearing out this cave network. And um, a lot of them were very, very small. And, you know, um, some of them were just like, you know, defilade positions, not even really caves. But it suffice to say that he saved women and children in, in his last moments that he decided to clear rather than flat to, to frag this particular cave, went in and saved women and children or a woman and children. And and he got to this one that he knew that was hostile and um he fragged the cave and, and, or excuse me, um, using a little bit too much tactical language, <laughs> threw a grenade in um, to clear out the bad guy, and the grenade went off, and he started what we call pieing around, um, clearing the breaching hole or the entry point. And as uh, he was moving around, he took um, a few rounds to the, the to the chest that I believe for the most part were absorbed by his body armor, his plate. And as he was crawling out of the entry hole, uh, a long burst rang out that uh, traveled south to north through the legs and growing approximately eight to ten rounds. And um, one of the guys pulled him out and uh, tried to get him to safety. And uh, within 
uh, a short period of time. He was on his way to Landstuhl, Germany. That's, um, yeah. <clears throat> a few times during that battle, the the phrase useless Afghan commandos or something similar to that is used because I can remember myself at least two times where the guy that I don't know if there were ANAs, the Afghan nationals or anyway, the Afghan commandos with his team, they just quit or they were too scared. Right. And they, they stopped fighting. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've worked with Afghan nationals, um, with ANA and ANP, um, ANA. And this is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never worked with commandos, and I, I don't know as far as the training that separates the two of them, so I can't speak very intelligently, but at least this this group of guys I had heard from others that was, you know, they were great until shit got real, and then not so much. And, you know, great in the locker room, you know, kind of yeah. thing. But, but Ben, somebody had to do something, and Ben was one of those that said, okay. I'm not going to sit back here and do nothing if they're not going to do what I am, basically. Right. Yeah. And he took charge and just kind of let it. I mean, this was their op, and and that's the way Green Berets operate. You know, every Green Beret is a platoon sergeant. It's getting these guys, you know, uh, the the knowledge and how to get in the fight most effectively. But yeah. There was one one of the enemy was shot and he was still alive. And I thought it was your brother, Ben, but maybe it was one of his teammates that they had him, and they were actually going to try to give him some medical care, but some of the Afghans just finished him up and killed him while he was laying there. Is that Can you, you, you just describe what happened there? Well, honestly, Tom is better equipped because that was a piece of information that I didn't know until after Tom un- uncovered it. If, if I mean, it, it, Tom, you want to take that one? I, you know more about that one than I did because he actually researched that part. Uh. Right. Yeah, that was uh, one of the Green Berets uh, told me about that. Um, honestly, uh, Thad, there isn't that much more to it than what you already outlined. Um, you know, he was basically dragged out of the cave and, and their, you know, protocol would be, you know, even if it's an enemy fighter, get him medical attention uh, if it's available. And, and one of the Afghans just pulled the trigger. That's from what I understand, that's what happened. Okay. Okay. Now, that was just interesting to me. So Ben goes to – did you say Lundstuhl? Is that where he ended up? Yes. That was a tough read, even for me, you know, having and, and having not known him yeah. or, or any of you. But y'all really give some incredible detail there. Jeremy was – I'm sorry, Ben was not in good shape, and – they're, they're able, they can't keep him alive in time for your parents to get there. You were able to make it. But one thing that was powerful to me and just, just, just broke my heart, Bo, was you went in with your dad. You told your mom, basically, you don't need to come in here. And your dad went in there and, yeah. and saw, saw Ben and, and his situation. And, and, um, I don't think he looked like himself. And, and he said, you know, he's, you're still my handsome boy. What do you feel comfortable saying about those last moments that that you had first of all with with your brother Ben and then and then that your dad had later? Well, one of the things that I I learned from that, as far as uh, Tom touched on how eccentric Jeremy was and how driven he can be, and when he would, as Tom so elegantly put it, flip the switch. And when we were getting the uh, um, uh, when he was sitting down with the medical staff at Landstuhl. 
And I asked my mom, you know, please don't just stay with Tracy and let, you know, dad talk to him. And he was a surgeon, uh, you know, reconstructive plastics guy. And um, so I, I, I watched as he was physician for 10 or 20 minutes going back and forth and they were answering question after question. And it, you would never believe that he was talking about his own son until finally all his questions had been answered. And he just said, okay, let's go see my son. And then you see it and you saw his, his face change and he allowed himself to be emotional after that. He needed to understand first and before he could, you know, let himself grieve and mourn. And I, I think that's one of those things that maybe uh, was a contributing factor as far as Jeremy and Ben's dimension or their, their personality, what made them such exceptional warriors is their ability to flip the switch and turn it on and turn it off. But in those moments, um, I, I remember just feeling so guilty and I, I don't know why, but there was just nothing I could do as, as far as watching him grieve his second son. And, you know, I'm, I, I still feel bad to this day about telling my mom don't go in there i don't regret it but i still feel like maybe it would have given her some closure or something but i don't know it's there's there's uh there's no playbook for that one you know yeah so at this point you're the the last living wise son and brother initially how did you deal with ben's death uh Anger dealt with a, you know, alcohol made me go numb. So I was, you know, consuming copious amounts so that I didn't have to feel anything. And uh, if I was sober, I was angry. And, uh, you know, in hell, sometimes I'd get just drunk and angry. And it's just, you know, it's no way to live. And it's, it's you know, I was dealing with it in all the wrong ways. And um, I was denying that I had sole survivor's guilt or survivor's guilt. And uh, I wasn't talking to anyone, you know, I'm fine, you know, leave me alone, just pushing everybody away and not letting anybody in, you know, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, I wasn't recharging, you know, there was there was no connection. And, you know, it wasn't until long after years later that, you know, that I was able to talk about it. And I found journaling and journaling was a good outlet, you know, because I can't speak, I can at least put ink to paper and just get it out in one way or another. And took a long, long, nearly year-long uh, absolute sobriety stint, and and just started diving into my family, and then I, you know, and uh, tried to focus on my parents and what little time I, I had with my dad left, and uh, you know, and just through time, you just learn to focus on the blessings, and you know, Jeremy and Ben are in a better place, and just got to be have faith that I'm going to see him again, you know. And Jeremy and Ben helped you to avoid doing something pretty extreme too when you when you reached rock bottom. Yeah, and you know, and I, one of the I thought about a lot of things in this in this one point where I, I felt like I had zero control, my career, my life, my family. I couldn't. Uh, my wife and I found out that it was absolutely impossible for me to have children naturally, and. Um, and I, I was looking at an early exit, you know, deliberately. And I, 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 took, I don't think that I, I, I am still, and, and even then, I was spiritually grounded enough. I'm not sure I could have gone through with it. But, you know, just the, the act of contemplation, it starts there. And I, even if, you know, I hadn't made a decision that night, you know, this is 
not that's not going to be me, but one of the things that I've reminded myself and that I keep reminding myself over the years is after Ben took eight to ten rounds to the legs and groin and, you know, despite all that and the amputations are up to the hip and he was fighting for every last impossible breath and I was looking for an early exit. And I, it just struck me as cowardice. And I was like, you know what? If Ben can fight, I can fight and I'm going to keep fighting. <laughs> That's good. Hey, Tom, how did you how did you approach this with Bo? Such a poignant just emotional period um, topic, you know, with his struggles. How did you, you know, get this information out of him for the book? Patience, uh, wanting to listen and, and wanting to, wanting him to be as comfortable as he could possibly be as he relived, you know, the worst hell that anyone could ever endure. Um, and, and just working together to identify who we needed to speak to, you know, both inside his family and then, of course, the SEALs, the Green Berets, the soldiers who were just all amazing in terms of, you know, wanting to help us and cooperate and, and get us any information uh, and, and spending time on the phone with me to make sure I understood what was going on and you know, Afghanistan and Iraq at these various points. I mean, we cover, you know, almost a decade of the war on terror in this book, more than 1,600 days combined with deployments between Jeremy and Ben and Bo. So there was a lot, lot of research. There was a lot to cover. There was a lot to do. But, you know, whenever Bo needed a break or, or just said, hey, this is really, you know, we were just talking about, his brother Ben's final moments, that was probably, correct me if I'm wrong, Bo, but probably the toughest stretch in terms of our research. And yeah. and uh, so it was just about patience and, and listening and, and just trying to do my part in helping Bo take this historic story of sacrifice and his family's story and make sure we were honoring everybody the right way from you know, of course, Jeremy and Ben, but his family members and then everyone they served with and all the people that helped them along the way and continue to help them to this day. Oh, how are your mom and your sister? They're rocks, you know, um, you know, despite everything. And, you know, we have our ups and downs, but um, my mom is uh, she's completely unshaken. And she just she says every day, I think I'm so proud of you. And, you know, I can't. You know, she says, uh, you know, she wants to see Jeremy and Ben, and I know she does. And she wants to see her, uh, my dad again, but, you know, she's, she wants to wait. She's, she's not ready to, you know, to just give up yet. And she's uh, fighting through a massive stroke and she's recovering and bouncing back. And, you know, despite everything, you know, she's just, I mean, seemingly unshakable. And uh, she's just doing, you know, the same thing that, you know, that I'm doing, just, just kind of diving into the family, you know, what family we have. And uh, she wants to see your grandbabies as much as possible. It's just the best therapy in the world, you know. Man, bless her. Sorry to hear about the stroke. Yeah. I just can't imagine as a parent, you know, what, what they've been through. Bo, who who really are the three wise men? Well, my dad is the third. And, um, you know, he was uh, – uh, counselor for all three of us growing up and you know we it's you know i i i 
told people before that, you know, you know, the oldest kids, you know, in a large family are raised by their parents and the youngest kid is, you know, it, to some extent raised almost as much by his siblings. And that was, that was the case for me, but it was that wisdom that was passed on, and, you know, the love and grace, you know, that was taught to them, you know, either directly to me or indirectly to me. And, uh, but, and, uh, I hope that, um, that he and Jeremy and Ben, I, I believe that they are proud of the work that, uh, Tom and I did. No doubt. Tom, what, what kind of impact has this book and this project had on you? A profound, um, you know, I've been privileged to, you know, be helping veterans and families of the fallen tell their stories for almost a decade, actually over a decade now. And, but, you know, this is a story, uh, every story means the world to me and I give it my all no matter, no matter what, but, you know, as soon as I kind of found out about the story and then read into it more in depth, um, I knew there was something special that, you know, we needed to tell this story. America needed to know what this family from Arkansas put on the line every day for more than a decade and, and ultimately sacrificed. And I just think it says so much about this generation of volunteer warriors and, and their family members as well. Um, people like, like Jeremy, like Ben, like your brother, Mark, um, are just, they went over there and fought. So families like mine, a civilian family could be safe. And, and America, the 99% of us that haven't served, we owe so much to that small 1% that, after 9-11, as Jeremy literally said to Bo, um, you know, those people couldn't, couldn't fight on that day when we were attacked, and, but I can. And, and this whole generation has taken it upon themselves to, to shoulder the heaviest burdens of, of war. And it's not just the, the men and women in battle, but uh, their families here at home. And I hope this story reminds people that, you know, it's it's been happening for 20 years and it's and it's not over yet. Not until every single service member is out of harm's way. Tom, what's next yeah. for the book promotion? Oh, well, it's it seems like something new comes up every week. Uh, we've been very excited and, and appreciative of the response, uh, not just, you know, from the media and people wanting to talk to us, but. Uh, you know, the, the book buyers out there who are leaving reviews on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Goodreads, you know, we see all of them and we appreciate all of them. Uh, we have a trip planned, uh, COVID permitting to, uh, our nation's capital where I grew up, uh, in May. Um, some really exciting events there, including one at the historic Army and Navy Club. So, uh, you know, hopefully this summer as, uh, conditions hopefully continue to improve COVID wise. You know, we've gotten so many requests for book signings and, and events and, and trust me, we read all of them and we want to sign every single book and we'll do our best to get out there from, you know, DC and down to Arkansas, of course, where the wises are from and all across the country if we can. So uh, stay tuned and, and we'll put all those announcements on the three wise men social media pages as, we get things planned out. 
Yeah, so listeners, not only read the book, but review it. Leave a review. And what's funny is I'm so big on reviews, on doing them. And, of course, I want them as well uh, since I've written a book. But I haven't written a review on your book yet. <laughs> it's funny. I guess I just yeah, it's easy to forget. So that's why I'm giving her a reminder out there because I'll be absolutely leaving a review on uh, Three Wise Men. It's, it's, a, it's really just been an awesome read for me. But what would you like to say in closing? Uh, just, you know, to all the service members out there, just look left, look right and, you know, keep in touch and make sure, you know, if you notice a change in the baseline to one of your brothers and sisters that, uh, reach out and say something, you know, it's, um, part of the, uh, the, the stigma within this, especially this generation of military, we don't like to, uh, admit pain. We don't like to admit when we're down, nobody wants to be the guy to drop their pack. So ask, you know, it's, uh. I, I use this analogy a lot, and I hope my uh, my best friend Cody is absolutely neurotic. And uh, if he doesn't call me three times a day, something's wrong. You know what I mean? That's he's just that's just his personality, and he's he's a big golden retriever. And um, but yeah, it's just kind of that encouragement to the, uh, our our service members that are currently active or reserve. You know, just look out for each other, and if you see something, say something. Well, I certainly just my heart goes out to you and your family, to Jeremy and, and Ben's wives and their children and, and your, your mom and sister. Uh, man, it's just a, it's a heartbreaking story, but it really is a story about service and about just some true warriors, selfless Americans and not just not just your brothers, but you and your family. Will you just give us the dates of when Jeremy and Ben died? Yeah, and first of all, Fat, thank you for your family's patriotic service and all that you guys have gone through. I, you know, from one, you know, family member to another. Um, yeah, Jeremy was killed on December 30th, 2009. Um, ben was uh, shot on uh, January 9th, 2012, and succumbed to his wounds in Landstuhl, Germany, on January 12th, 2012. Okay. Well, I really appreciate y'all so much. Is there anything that you would like to say before we wrap it up? No, but thank you so much just for having us on. And it's really been a privilege talking to you, Thad. Thank you so much. And, Thad, uh, I just want to say, again, a special thanks to the Forrester family and the Wise family and all military families, particularly Gold Star families. And uh, I'm just in awe of your patriotism and your sacrifice and our country will never forget as long as I'm around, I'll be continuing to tell these stories and thank you to both of you and your families for all you've done for our country. Man, appreciate that. You're, you're very welcome. And Tom, you're doing a kick butt job. You have been for a long, yeah, like 10 years, you said at least. So keep it up because if you write it, I'm going to read it. So I'll read the next yeah. one, whatever's coming. Thank you for telling it, though.